This podcast is supported by the Center for Inclusive Growth, the philanthropic arm of Mastercard. The pandemic has accelerated the transition to a digital economy, widening disparities while also creating new avenues for inclusion. At the Center for Inclusive Growth, we're working to build a digital economy for all, tapping into Mastercard's core assets to advance actionable insights, innovative programs, and partnerships for social impact. Learn more and subscribe at mastercardcenter.org. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In the past, Americans banded together in moments of great peril, like during World War II and momentarily after 9-11. That hasn't happened during the pandemic. Instead, we've seen extreme polarization, skepticism toward expertise, and mistrust of institutions. Vivian Schiller leads Aspen Digital. She says mis- and disinformation online are partly to blame. Much of this stems from malign actors, some who are driven by profit, and others like foreign foreign intelligence services who strategically weaponize our existing divisions against us, often using social media and other means. Today, she talks with cyber experts about why public health, elections, and democracy are at risk. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Our information ecosystems are broken. We're increasingly living in different realities of news, politics, and information. And those we would normally rely on to help unify people, like political leaders, educators, news media, civic organizations, and faith groups, are battling increasing perceptions of mistrust, says Vivian Schiller. They are fighting brush fires with water bottles and losing credibility just when we need them the most. It will take the whole of society and time to climb our way out. Cyber issues are destabilizing our democracy. So Schiller's Aspen Digital Program at the Aspen Institute created the Commission on Information Disorder to find solutions. She speaks with two of the commission's members, Chris Krebs and Yasmin Green, about election-related disinformation, the role of social media companies, and why people join and leave conspiracy movements like QAnon. Krebs led the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. Green is the Director of Research and Development for Jigsaw, a unit within Google focused on using technology to solve security challenges. Here's Vivian Schiller. Last summer, our bipartisan Aspen Cybersecurity Group identified mis- and disinformation and its many forms as a national security threat. Their work and interest led us to create earlier this year something we are calling the Commission on Information Disorder. The idea was to bring together a cross-section of experts across ideologies, backgrounds, experiences, for dialogue, and to build action-oriented recommendations for civic organizations, government, and the private sector, which, by the way, includes big tech. It's a tall order, but intractable issues are what we do at the Aspen Institute. The Commission has three co-chairs. Rashad Robinson, who is the head of Color of Change, which is one of the most influential anti-racism organizations in this country today. Katie Couric, who's of course a longtime journalist and an Aspen trustee. And here with us today is Chris Krebs, who was appointed by the Trump administration as the first ever head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Chris has a long history in both the public and private sector, 
He served under George W. Bush. He then was at Microsoft and is now a partner in the Krebs Stamos Group. And uh, pr we proudly have him as a fellow at Aspen Digital. We have 15 other commissioners, including researchers, civic leaders, business leaders, national security experts, current and former elected officials of both parties, journalists, philanthropists, and more. Among those is Yasmin Green, who is also here with us today. Yasmin is the Director of Research and Development for Jigsaw, which builds technology to make the world safer from global security challenges. She has personally pioneered new approaches to counter violent extremism and state-sponsored disinformation. The Commission has been examining in just its few, short few months together core issues such as the harm that myths and disinformation has on populations, transparency in social media platforms and the media itself, and restoring trust without which our democracy cannot function. So my first question, both of you, is why did you decide to join this commission? Yasmin, I'll start with you. Uh, for me, well, I mean, just to reiterate what, what Vivian just shared, but this is a, a unique composition of working group on misinformation. Like, I've been invited to many, and I've watched other ones, and they tend to be pretty homogenous and siloed. Um, and this is, as evidenced by the co-chairs, this is combining people with cyber and government experience in Chris, civil society um, experience in Rashad Robinson, who runs one of the largest uh, online racial justice organizations in the country, uh, and Katie Couric, who represents traditional media. So this is not a group that is, there's no group think. These are really lively commission meetings. Uh, there is no multitasking on these Zooms uh, because it's such, um, it's really energetic and charged stuff. Um, and I knew it would be, and it really is a unique, and it's a pride point for Aspen to, to uh, convene diverse groups, but this is an absolute first for this topic, and I'm, I feel privileged to be part of it. Go ahead, Chris. So um, w when I found myself suddenly unemployed in late uh, November, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was thinking of like the letter I was supposed to write and leave in my desk to my successor and in, in the incoming administration. And I had a list of things that I thought um, could, could benefit from some additional leadership and strategy. But there were, there were two key things that, that really stood out to me uh, that I was passionate about and I thought that there was a great opportunity for the, the new administration to take on. First was stand up a ransomware task force because it was a massive problem that was really gonna cause some problems if we didn't get on top of it and look what's happened over the last seven months. Um, the second was take a leadership position on disinformation. What I found after being in kind of the eye of the storm for four years was that there was a diffusion of responsibility problem and that, that there was no clear leader in disinformation. The FBI had their part, the intelligence community had their part, you know, sitting where I was at DHS and in the cyber agency, we had our part, um, but, but it was always kind of like feeling around as you, as you went about it, it, and it wasn't a priority, and of course, in government, nothing's a priority until it's a priority. And my, you know, my takeaway and my recommendation was, one, you need to put somebody at a very senior level in the White House in charge of, um, in charge of di disinformation as a key advisor to the president. And the second thing was you need to have a public-private partnership style task force established to really get to the bottom of why things are like they are. Now, as January came about, January 6th, uh, you know, came and went, and then the new administration came in, and you, you just saw across the nation the, the list of things that President Biden and his team would have to tackle, 
Um, when, when Aspen reached out and with the generosity of Craig Newmark and his sponsorship, asked me to come in and, uh, you know, as the first chair and we'd kind of figure out who was on it, I jumped at it because I thought it was that important. And if we could take six to seven months or so uh, to do a lot of hard work for the administration and for Congress and for industry, and we could turn over a, a roadmap, an action plan, then I think that was you know, something that I could continue at least to give back uh, to the community. And that's hopefully what we intend to do. So how did, I wanna just now step back and, and just ask you to talk about how we got here. We came together as a country during World War II. We came together momentarily around 9-11, but it didn't last. We did not come together as a country around the pandemic. What has changed? What are the conditions that exist today that are causing us to be in this such intense polarized moment? So um, I, t I think that disinformation and propaganda are the, the world's, it's the world's third oldest profession. We, we all know what the first is. The second <laughs> is uh, actually intelligence collection, trying to figure out what the other person's doing. But third is propaganda. Third is changing yeah. the narrative to suit your outcomes and shape, uh, shape the messaging. Um, I, I, you know, something that's occurred to me is, is that, it, that I'm really looking forward to or the studies about just how human cognition and society in general changed during uh, the pandemic because of the loss of community, the lack of community, how community has shifted from actually being out in the neighborhood, you know, going to the community centers, congregating at schools, and everything shifted to online and you're staying in your house. I have five kids. My wife's lucky enough to join us here today, get her out of the house. And like the way things changed in a year and a half, it's, it's remarkable and it changes the way you think, changes the way you engage. And all those communities went online. They went into various uh, m message boards and online groups. That's what gave rise to some of the more extremist movements like QAnon and some of those, those message boards. Think about how it was such a radicalizing moment um, and, and led us to these to this point where it's not just that truth doesn't matter anymore, it's that there are alternate realities that people live in. Um, and and the, the, what is the North Star? What is the trust center? Uh, and you know, whether it's restoring trust, as, as Vivian said, I'm not sure what trust ever was, uh, but, but going forward, how do we instill or somehow reintroduce some concept of what's real and what's not? You know, uh, Yasmin, you've, you've been in the space for a long time and you've seen, you've been, I mean, I've known you for quite a number of years and you've been working on issues around radicalization. In fact, you've done seminal work when it came to the recruitment and radicalization of, of ISIS members in the UK and had quite effective interventions there. So you've seen this happening. We're now seeing it more in our own country. So how do you think it's, why has it spread? It's interesting, actually, because we, um, part of the work that we get to do at uh, my group, Jigsaw, is um, ethnographic research. So we work for a big technology company, but we get to spend time with humans in a more kind of profound way in their homes um, over several days to understand what's going on uh, with the human being that is playing out online. Um, and uh, actually, because of our work on countering radicalization, which dates back a decade, we have been interested for several years in understanding conspiracism um, and what's happening with people that um, there seem to be so many conspiracy theories that are gaining traction, how does that play out online, um, and also specifically what, um, 
what are the attributes of uh, conspiracy, um, conspiracy belief that might lead people to be violent because of our work on radicalization? So we've done like three of these deep studies over the last three years, um, one pre-pandemic and, and two during the pandemic. The most recent one with people who left QAnon. So there's a lot of coverage of people. I think there's really good journalism on, on QAnon as a movement, uh, but it was interesting to hear about the people who've left. But anyway, what, going into it, I, I, um, I had not anticipated that there would be so much joy um, in it for people. Um, firstly, the, the euphoria of receiving the truth with a capital T um, and the adrenaline and you know, the addictiveness of, for example, with, with the QAnon story um, of learning. And actually, it's a social movement. It's more than a conspiracy theory. For, for a lot of conspiracy theories, we kind of understood that they have this universal architecture of um, the secret cabal, the hidden agenda, the cover story, and the proxy and the affiliates. And one of the takeaways was that um, the violence part is associated with how much you're focusing on um, identifying and vilifying um, the plotters. Uh, but in any case, uh, so, and, and also that people didn't just believe one. We, we, we said we want to have like, representation from all these different conspiracy theories. And then when we went into the field, the first study, 70 people, there wasn't a single person that only believed one conspiracy theory. And it makes sense because once you're kind of brought into that, that um, architecture, it's, it's, it's very plausible that other ones are true. But um, I would just say that I think one of the reasons is that in a, in a moment during COVID where we had um, so much um, fear and isolation and misinformation, it was like a perfect storm for people to get very engrossed in especially misinformation narratives and movements that are based on. So, but what works? So you said you've been able to, there, you know, you also study people who leave the movement. What, what tactics, what strategies work to persuade people to, you know, when they're so convinced that they have found, as you said, capital you, T truth? We're going straight to the, the, the solution to misinformation. <laughs> yes, I am. You're sufficient, Vivian. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you that we can talk about some of the things that I'm excited about that maybe the commission will work on about what might work. Uh, the QAnon study we just finished. We haven't even yeah. published it. So this is breaking. Um, uh, these are breaking findings. Excellent. I didn't get approval to share. But um, <laughs> the, there were generally three reasons that people um, left QAnon in our, in our study. Um, so maybe we should just describe the study. It was with 35 people. Um, across the country uh, and very in-depth. So some people we spoke to maybe like four or five times even. Um, and the three reasons were hypocrisy, um, uh, especially, for example, if somebody is, has a very strong um, um, sense of faith and um, then like hears that there are speakers or propagators of QAnon who are like deeply racist or uh, you know, propagating racist narratives, um, that didn't feel um, consistent to them. Obviously, uh, um, kind of false prophecies. Um, for some people, at least, the fact that the, that, um, the, the last year played out the way that it did um, did leave them to, um, to disassociate. Um, and the third was, there was this lady who said, um, when you tell me that, the third was that, that people just went too far afield. To, it, was, it became, um, it was like too outrageous. But this lady said, and this lady was actually, she was a, an Ivy League law um, lawyer from, that had got her law degree from an Ivy League school. So this isn't like, this is everybody. We had representation from across society. And she said, when you're telling me that a pillow that's worth like 300 bucks isn't worth, isn't 
300 bucks because you're just getting a pillow, you're also getting a child that's trafficked inside the pillow, then you've just gone too far for me. If you just stayed normal, I would have remained in the movement. So it's actually some of the wackier stuff actually might be a saving grace because I think, you know, for some reasonable people. Uh, so I think that the challenge yeah. for us next is, and then what do you do? One of the interesting things that people said was that, um, one thing, sorry, final, I'm just monologuing, and you're the interesting oh, No, 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 it's really... Well, this will just be my final thing that I say, uh, <laughs> is that um, when we were studying radicalization 10 years ago, one of the things I was surprised to learn was that people who leave extremist groups, whether they're gangs or neo-Nazi groups or um, jihadi groups, it's a process. Like, I thought if you're neo-Nazi, surely now that you've left, it was one day you woke up and said that absolutely, like, it's over, the light, the light switch. Um, flipped, but actually, no, it was a process like um, becoming, a, you know, recovering from alcoholism or something. And it takes time and you have to change your life and you can relapse. It's amazing finding somebody, hearing somebody say that 9 11 was the waking moment for them, but then they still felt drawn back into um, violent Islamism. Anyway, um, but I understood that, that comparison. And people who left QAnon said, I know that. I know that this, this is not what it claims to be, but some of the narratives suck them back in. And their online environment, because algorithms um, start to reflect what you've looked for and what you've enjoyed watching before, and you've subscribed to pages and groups. And so I think that's a really interesting um, problem from a tech perspective is how do we give people a fresh start? Just like phys in the physical world, you would want to get out of a community that is drawing you back into extremism. Just gonna... So, so the, 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 the kind of the pivot I want to make off that is that, and I think you mentioned it in your opening about polarization. We heard it a little bit on the prior conversation. Um, it, so, so this is not about polarization. This is not about right or left, political. This is orthogonal to democracy. This is an alternate reality. Mm -hmm. This is leading us down to some sort of false prophet or, um, or autocracy. And, and that's what, to me, makes it such a remarkable house on fire moment. And there are, you know, I, I, maybe I kind of overreact a little bit. Um, I did have a nickname when I was in government as Catastrophic Krebs. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm I was always you're right. so sorry that I know that. Now. I was always right, though. Um, uh, but, but, you know, I, I really do feel as if we are in one of those defining moments in American history. And how we respond in the, in the next year um, is going to be pretty important. And... The real problem, particularly with some of the, the election-related disinformation, and it's easy, particularly the amount of content that I consume on social media and on some of the, the other uh, media outlets, um, it, it, it can, it's easy to dismiss. Like, oh, that's crazy. Nobody believes that. The problem here is it's cumulative. It aggregates. It builds, it builds, it builds, and it spins out into these additional stories that become very, very, very difficult to debunk because you, tie, you, 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 know, you tell a big lie long enough, that's what becomes the accepted truth. So let's talk about, you touched on it a little bit, uh, Yasma, but let's talk about the role of the social media platforms here. Um, it is not a coincidence that a lot of the phenomenon we've talked about, the increased polarization, the lack of trust, the ability to, the disability to talk about distance, uh, across differences has to do with the way some social media platforms are designed and they do move us by design towards content that we will want to engage with, which is often content that we agree with. 
So what, what did you see, Chris? Let's start with you. You know, in your, in your role <laughs> in government, particularly around issues as you were preparing for protecting the election and then, you know, immediately after the election, how did you look at the social media platforms and what do we need to do there? So, so I'll say this. So 2016, I think, was an eye-opener for a lot of people and what, you know, I, I tend to call the 2016 election and the, the Russian interference um, our Sputnik moment. And, and f purely for the reason, I think it was the first time that the American people kind of grasped the fact that cyber issues and disinformation could be destabilizing to democracy. And so as we built out the plan for protecting the 2020 election, while we started initially in the, the cybersecurity space, ultimately through three and a half years of scenario planning, we ultimately landed on the spot of it was gonna be a perception hack, it was gonna be disinformation that was ultimately the thing that, that would disrupt or lead to a potential disruption of the election. Okay, so as we sat back, we had to think about who our key partners were, because the government's not gonna fix this all alone, who do we have to work with? So just right out the gate, we were working in a collaborative fashion with the, disin with, with the, the, the social media platforms, and they, I, you know, I will give them a whole lot of credit for stepping up their disruption activities. It's, it's not a week that goes by that Facebook, for instance, doesn't talk about one of their, you know, a, a disrupting a coordinated and authentic uh, campaign. Um, that, that said, those are, you know, just like we were in CISA operating at the security operational level, that's what they were doing within the platforms. What we have to have is, is a, a shift at the top about what is, you know, within acceptable bounds and how the, the platforms themselves, the algorithms, uh, actually generate those outcomes. You, you could actually probably, from a disruptive perspective, create a condition where you don't have to deal with disrupting the coordinated and authentic behavior campaigns because the, the platform itself does not tolerate, is not permissive enough for those things to happen. How was, just a quick follow-up, and then I want to ask you a, a question related to the platforms. You talked about, of course, that, that Sputnik moment of 2016 when we saw the kind of manipulation that was coming out of the uh, Internet Research Agency, which of course is an arm of uh, Putin's government. What, as we move towards 2020, how much, uh, what, what did you perceive as the balance of what was uh, foreign intelligence services versus homegrown or a symbiosis between them? So, so the first things first. The, so the Internet Research Agency, or, or is it evolved into what was known as Project LACTA, uh, was sponsored by an, a gentleman named uh, Prigozhin, and he was, he was, he's literally a chef. He's Putin's chef. He also is one of the supporters of uh, the, the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group that sends mercenaries into Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, Syria, for instance. So this guy's a jack of all trades and none of them good. Um, he, he, is what, he a good cook, at least, though? I would not eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've seen what happens, right? Um, so I could riff here, but we don't have enough time. Yeah. Um, the, so the, 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 what happened, though, because the government stepped up, because the intelligence community and the FBI were more focused on disrupting uh, uh, disinfo out of St. Petersburg, um, and, the, and the platform stood up and did their work. Um, what, a, what happened is we, we took the ability of certain techniques off the table. So they had to change their, 
behavior. So then they started moving out of Russia. They, they moved for the 2020 election. They stood up operations in Ghana, uh, Spain, uh, and Mexico. And they were, in, in the Mexican case and in the U.S., they were using proxies paying out-of-work U.S. journalists to write stories. So they evolved their techniques because we, we, we made them change. And that shows that we're dealing with an intelligent adversary. Now, to the punchline, 2020. They didn't have to do a lot, right? I mean, there was enough disinfo about, um, about mail-in ballots, about even COVID, um, that gave just plenty of fodder. And that's really this sort of insidious thing about the way that foreign intelligence services work is they use, there's always a kernel of truth. There's an element of fact that they, that they push and they propagate. And they, their, their idea, they're, they're not trying to, to get you to actually, you know, most of the time, to, to make a single decision. They want to undermine confidence. They want you to lose your grasp of reality and that your government, our government, is doing the right things for us. And in that, again, that when you talk about restoring trust, that's what we're trying to get back to, trying to get back to a position of um, understanding what reality is. This podcast is supported by the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. The shift from an analog to a digital economy has spurred progress and growth over the past 30 years, and in the last year alone, digital connections have provided a critical lifeline to keep societies functioning. However, far too many people are still left out of the digital economy. Since the start of the pandemic, one in four micro and small businesses have permanently closed. Low-skilled workers around the world are facing slower-than-expected job recovery, and for the first time in 20 years, global poverty is back on the rise. There's a clear imperative. We need to do more than just build back better. We must rebuild for all. That's why we're partnering with the Aspen Institute to host the virtual Global Inclusive Growth Summit on October 14th, where we'll be bringing together purpose-driven leaders from around the world and across sectors to catalyze innovative solutions and partnerships to build more inclusive and sustainable economies. To learn more, go to globalinclusivegrowthsummit.com and register today. Yeah, I've been coming back to the platforms, and we should disclose that you were part of the broader Google family. What can the platforms do that they are not doing today? To Chris makes an excellent point about the excellent work that the platforms. He gets to say that the platforms can make themselves inhospitable to. <laughs> yeah, 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 Ask yeah. him. He said it. I didn't say it. That's not fair. I have to say, say how. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I I think one of the things that Chris said is um, that makes the problem really difficult is. If, you, if it's real people, I mean, the, the basis for prosecuting the foreign influence campaigns was that they were foreign. That's the yeah. easy part. Um, and they were, so they, were, yeah. they were pretending to be other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, you're, um, if it's organic activity, then I don't know if you're right. all familiar with the, the term that the platforms use, that they don't want to be arbiters of the truth. Because yeah. they can't be, firstly, we don't share a sense of truth. Um, and, um, and it's technically kind of very challenging for them to do that. So they, they have... I think the area where they've invested 
you know, incredibly um, is in algorithmic um, approaches to spotting, you know, the, first it starts with they have some policies about what's allowed and what's not allowed, and they add to what's prohibited all the time. So, for example, QAnon didn't used to be prohibited, and, and now it is um, on most major platforms. So they add to it all the time, and then they train these algorithms with real videos and posts to spot that type of content, and then they go after it algorithmically. Um, so that's really impressive how sophisticated these algorithms have become, and they're going to become much more sophisticated, uh, which is promising. And they're still not going to get us to um, where we want to be in terms of tackling misinformation. So one of the areas that I'm, I'm personally really interested in, and we've done a lot of, um, I think, really promising research with academic partners at, at Jigsaw, and I think is a big opportunity for platforms, is how can we help people once they are confronted with misinformation? I, it's, laudable and vital that we try to prevent them to be, you know, from being confronted, but not even all misinformation will be, uh, you know, policy prohibited and algorithms aren't perfect at finding the stuff in any case, so what can we do? Um, and the uh, behavioral sciences community of researchers has, um, has some really promising strategies that, uh, that I would like us to adopt. I'll just give, you know, what we do basically, by the way, right now as an industry, if you're seeing misinformation, we'd like to put a fact check there, um, or we put a label that tells you something about the information that you didn't know already, um, which is good. Like the, the um, studies suggest that that does work. Does, it does help people correct false beliefs a little bit. Um, and that little bit is really fragile to if you had pre-existing beliefs you know, that are contrary to that information. And what we found when we went out and spoke to people um, was we would do research sessions with people who are um, heavy disinformation consumers, and where they, when they came across a fact check that was contrary to their beliefs, not only did they not revise their beliefs, they also um, kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater in that they thought the platform is now in on that. Now it's the fact checkers are biased, the platforms are biased. That, so, um, there are limits to the strategy of fact-checking. Uh, and and the, it has to be said, there is also, you know, you, you, there is a tradition, even though the platforms themselves, they are not government, so they, people don't have a First Amendment right on the platforms, we do have a, a grand tradition in this country of free expression. And just saying something false or something you don't agree, d d uh, don't agree with is not a reason, of course, to take something down. This is where it gets very, very complicated and where a lot of the heated uh, discussion is. I just want to mention, I'm going to throw it to you. You know, we've been talking about, we've been bouncing around here a little bit, and the reason I'm, it, it's by design, whether we're talking about the Russians or QAnon or the platforms, it's because to understand information disorder, we need to look at the whole picture. We need to understand all the root causes that are coming together to cause this set of issues and to lead us towards figuring out how we come up by the end of September <laughs> with these, with, and by the way, I wanted to mention one thing we did not talk about by design is about the collapse of local journalism, and I'm not talking about it here because we have a session tomorrow on that in which we will talk about it. I hope you all come, but, uh, but all of this is critical towards driving to find some kind of solutions. Chris? So just the, I think the last thing I, point I want to make here is that the way we ultimately, it's just a thought about disinformation in general, was there's a supply and demand problem. So when you talk about the supply side, that's where the disruptive actions come in, whether it's on the platform or the intelligence community. I think we have the greatest opportunity on the demand side to inoculate the public. So you don't have to get to a position 
where you're fact checking or you're, you, you, the, the, the base is already trained and ready to react. And so a lot of election disinformation, for instance, was successful because the average American thinks that the voting experience is showing up on November 3rd, casting their vote and waiting for CNN to, or whatever to, uh, to, to announce the winner. But it's obviously much greater than that. So we need more civics education. We need more uh, uh, communications from our officials on how things work. So when a message that, you know, 2.7 million votes were cast when only a million voters were registered, the, the recipient of that information immediately knows that it's not true and they're being lied to. Eh, eh. Well, Chris Yasmin, thank you. Great, it's fun to be in. Chris Krebs co-chairs the Commission on Information Disorder and the Aspen Cybersecurity Group at the Aspen Institute. He was the first director of cybersecurity and infrastructure security at the Department of Homeland Security. In November 2020, President Trump fired Krebs after he refuted that the election was rigged. Yasmin Green has pioneered approaches to counter violent extremism and state-sponsored disinformation, including seeding the first online network of former violent extremists and survivors of terrorism. Vivian Schiller leads Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute. Her program's Commission on Information Disorder will release a set of recommendations next month for civil society, government, and the private sector. You can find more information about the Commission and its work at aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by the Aspen Ideas Festival team. Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Kristen Cromer, Libby Franklin, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenen, John Melgard, Azalea Milan, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Philanthropy alone can't fix poverty. The problems of the world are just too big for any one sector or industry to solve alone. At the Center for Inclusive Growth, we're committed to building partnerships that combine the strengths of business, government, and nonprofits to scale sustainable, equitable, and inclusive economic growth. Learn more and subscribe at mastercardcenter.org.